0: It's good to see everybody. My name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're glad that you've joined us for worship this morning. Is anyone familiar with an uh, organization called The Onion? Not the food, but the organization. It's a satirical news organization. It's literally fake news, okay? Um, it, uh, sometimes it's a little bit graphic, but I really enjoy it. Um, there was an article a while ago that I liked. Um, I saved them because I like them so much. Um, it was a, a child disappointed to learn parents' love is unconditional. And it reads, Saying he doesn't even feel like trying anymore, eight-year-old Max Budso expresses strong disappointment Monday after learning this parents' love is unconditional. Quote, I always thought they loved me because I'd earned it, but unfortunately it turns out their affection is apparently limitless. End quote. Said a frustrated Bledsoe wondering aloud about the point of doing well in school, learning how to play the piano, and always going to bed before nine. Look at me. I just wasted the last three years of my life trying to win their approval by being a kid, a kid. And for what? To get the love that was coming to him anyway? But so added that he envied his adopted younger brother, who really has to work for his parents' love. <laughs> <laughs> they've got the onion. They've just, more recently, there's a Christian one. I don't know if you've seen this, Babylon B, And they have some, some pretty funny ones as well. One um, that hit home for me, it was a title, the title of the article was Introvert Hires Personal Representative to Engage in Church Small Talk. And I was like, that's not even funny, that's a good idea. (laughs) According to local reports, self-described introvert and church member Natalie Ivory has recently hired an outgoing, excitable young woman found on Craigslist to take care of all of her church small talk needs. Ivory first put her new interpersonal communications expert to work Sunday morning as she entered the church building and was welcomed by an enthusiastic team of greeters. Directing the team to her representative, Ivory was freed up to sit in the foyer and quietly read a book, diverting all greetings, which threatened to exceed a brief hello, direct leader delegate, who also proceeded to take care of the say hi to your neighbor time, as well as the post-service small talk time. <laughs> Quote, it's working out really well so far, Ivory told reporters. Extroverted church members get to interact with another excitable person, while I get to keep to myself without seeming rude. And at publishing time, Ivory had reportedly booked the representative services for Sunday mornings and Wednesday night church functions for the remaining of the year. I love the undie, and I love the Babylon v., We live in a world where it is fun to be sarcastic. It's fun to create these kind of false articles. And it's fun precisely because we kind of live in a world that is that way inherently. Um, And it's become ever so more clear in our more recent political climate with the kind of expansion of quote-unquote fake news, right? We've never really been able to trust each other. And I'm told politicians have never really been very trustworthy. But things have recently exploded to the point where I don't know um, if you've heard this phrase or not, but it's now going around in academic circles. We're living in an era of post-truth. The very concept of truth is being questioned. Um, There's a very famous uh, political interview where alternative facts were presented uh, as part of the argument. Um, This comes from a philosophical um, conversation that happened a long time ago where we moved from a stage called modernity into postmodernity. And in modernity, we thought we had this very objective grasp on reality. We thought we could really tell you what truth is. And postmodernity questioned that and they said, Who are you as a rich white person to say what's true or right or normal for maybe a poor Latino in a third world society? Um, we have conversations about objective truth versus subjective truth or relative truth, truth that's not um, um, necessarily consistent from person to person to person. We live in a world full of dishonesty. We live in a world where we are not always telling the truth to one another, and it's a habit that destroys communities. It's a habit that, in fact, is not supposed to belong in God's kingdom. And as we are going through the Sermon on the Mount, the King's speech, Jesus' instructions on what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom, we'll see that Jesus takes time out of his speech to devote a large section of teaching to this very topic, the topic of truth-telling. So, if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're in Matthew chapter 5. We're in a very famous uh, series of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is going through and giving six theses and then antitheses. And he's saying, you've heard it said, but I say. And he's going deeper with the law. He's saying, "To, to be my follower doesn't mean you get to get out of obedience. It means you go further into obedience. It means you go closer to God's intentions. And so he'll give us something that the Israelites, God's people, had heard in the past. And then he'll say, Now let's go deeper with that. Let's go to the heart of the matter with that. He doesn't contradict it. He doesn't say, let's get rid of it. He says, let's fulfill it. Let's go further. And we read this morning a passage that's normally overlooked. Most commentaries and a lot of sermon series, um, this passage gets lumped into other passages. I thought about doing it, um, but I think it's important. And I think there's lots to talk about with it. We'll read, um, pick up in verse 33, Matthew 5, verse 33. Jesus speaking here. Anything more than this comes from evil. You might see a footnote there at the bottom of your Bible. It could be translated, the evil one. And you see this in the Lord's Prayer as well. The language is not super clear if she's referring to just evil in general or the evil one, Satan, um, really goes to the same source. Jesus here gives us the traditional thesis and antithesis, right? You've heard it said, but I say to you. As I've been arguing, there's really a threefold pattern in these sections where Jesus gives us moral instructions, where Jesus gives a picture of traditional righteousness. He then identifies kind of a vicious cycle that started to take place in creation, and then he gives us transformative initiatives, or or actually simple tasks that we can take now to start to work our way towards the kingdom life. Often we read the Sermon on the Mount, and we focus on that second part, The, but I tell you, and it seems unrealistic. And so when Jesus says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you, do not lust. We hear that and we go, well, that's impossible. And we miss that there's a third part there where Jesus says, remove temptation. And we go, oh, well, there's an action that I can take. We can all do that. We can all work towards what is the seemingly impossible ideal that Jesus gives us of life in the kingdom. And here you have that threefold structure, so let's go through it. First, this traditional righteousness. He says, You've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, and you should perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So the Israelites were commanded in the Old Testament that if they were to speak, they were to speak truthfully. And if they were to um, have to give an oath, particularly in a court setting, that oath should reflect a true statement. And if they performed a vow to the Lord, um, if, they, if they made a promise to the Lord, they needed to go through with that promise. And there were very serious consequences if you were to break these things. It's not unsimilar to our situation, in which if you're subpoenaed to Congress or you're within, in front of a grand jury and you are under oath um, and perjure yourself, you are in serious problems. In our case, it'd be with the legal system, right? You, you might be facing jail time. Um, back in ancient times, it was more of a divine wrath type of thing. Like, God would get revenge on you. You're, you are calling, in effect, his justice over your statements. And so the Israelites had instructions on this, and there are examples in the Old Testament of people giving oaths. God himself actually gives oaths sometimes. He swears by himself on occasion, which is an interesting concept. Um, there are examples of people making promises to the Lord hastily as seemingly an example of why you should think twice or think long and hard before you promise God you would do something. There's a famous story in the Old Testament where a man makes a promise that if God gives him a certain thing, he will kill the next person he sees and ends up being his daughter. And the story has a pretty clear, pretty clear lesson, right? You need to think through these things. Don't so hastily go through with these these oaths and and make these promises to perform things to the Lord. So this is what you've heard. And here's what Jesus says. Don't take an oath at all. He prohibits oath-taking, which were given permission in the Old Testament. There were actually instructions about how to take oaths. Jesus here says, don't take oaths. Again, this might seem like perhaps he's contradicting what you find in the Old Testament. But he's going to say he's moving further towards what God was always intending. For Jesus, oaths were supposed to limit lying. But they don't do that, perhaps aren't capable of doing that. And in the new kingdom, Jesus has come. They're not necessary because we just simply will not lie. Our yes will be yes and our no will be no. Jesus says, do not take an oath at all. He lists off four ways people at the time were taking oaths. By heaven, I swear by heaven, I swear by earth, I swear by Jerusalem, I swear by my head. And these were ways that the Jewish people at the time were kind of scaling the seriousness of what they were saying. And so we have examples of this. Um, If you um, swore by Jerusalem, it was a lot more serious than swearing by your own head. People took your word a little bit more seriously in a courtroom, um, in a judicial setting. Um, and Jesus is critiquing this. So the, the reason the Jewish people do this is because they think God is so sacred, they won't swear by God. Um, so they substitute for God, right? And instead of, I swear by God, the statement is true. I swear by Jerusalem, or I swear by heaven. And notice Jesus' critique here. He goes, when you swear by Jerusalem, you realize that's God's temple. When you swear by heaven, you realize that's where he dwells. When you swear by the earth, you realize that's his footstool. Here's what Jesus is saying. To, to make these substitutions or to, to even have to say I swear by God or in front of God, I invoke God as a witness, is to misunderstand the entire function and nature of the world that you live in. There is no speech you make outside of the presence of God. There is no statement you make outside of the witness of God. Jesus is saying, God is everywhere everywhere. One of the reasons you don't need to say, I swear by God, is because it's implied, if you really think through it. For people who are children of God, no statement they make, no action they make, is outside of the presence of God. And so they're called to obedience, and they're called to faithfulness. And Jesus here prohibits oaths. Um, A couple things to point out. Um, Oaths are both then and now, seemingly a sign that we live in a world of lies. The fact that you have oaths and you have promises are seemingly a way of trying to curtail lying, but they also sometimes encourage lying by giving you a way to skirt the truth and other opportunities. Oaths create this like two-tier system of speech, where if I'm under oath or on a swear, my words are supposedly more truthful and you should have more confidence in them. But if I'm speaking normally, well, my words are economical, which means they're useful. They're convenient. They work for me. They may or may not be more or less true. And Jesus is calling his people to a one-tiered system of speech, where your yes is your yes, and your no is your no, and you don't need to separate out when you're telling the truth how confident people should be in your speech. Oaths like divorces seem like a permission that was given in the Old Testament that is now taken back by Jesus. Jesus is deepening the law because God's intentions from the beginning of creation was for his community, his children, to be truthful to one another. And the oath instructions of the Old Testament were meant to help his community be truthful to one another. And not only did they not do that, but Jesus says it's time to go further. It's time to go straight to the heart of what God wanted all along, which is just complete and total honesty. Kingdom people should be this one-tier type of speech people. Our yes should be yes, our no should be no. There should be no duplicity in any of our conversation, in any of our talk. This kind of radical honesty is difficult. I think you and I lie Or at least do not tell the truth or present the truth more than we probably are aware of. In terms of telling stories, leaving out certain statements, exaggerating certain things, the way we frame conversations, the way we set certain people up to have conversations, the way we connect individuals... The kind of speech Jesus is calling his people to is a difficult kind of speech. It's one that will take time to learn, it's one that will take a community to form. To tell the truth as Jesus is asking us to would require humility. It means you can't exaggerate, it means you can't use lies as weapons against others because you want to have power and superiority. You've got to be humble. You have to be a servant. To tell the truth, as Jesus is asking us, commanding us to, requires confessions. It means we can't lie to hide our sins and our weaknesses. To tell the truth, as Jesus here is calling us to, means we must have trust. We have to trust our community for forgiveness, for encouragement, for support. To tell the truth, as Jesus is asking us to, requires a certain fearfulness or fearlessness. Truth-tellers cannot be afraid of conflict. Truth-tellers have to be able to deal with conflict gracefully in a community-building way. And as we look at the, the life Jesus is calling us to, the question that, we are called to ask ourselves in every aspect of our life as when we speak and even when we act is this truthful is this duplicit in any way when when our family is talking when i'm talking to my spouse is this the truth when we're talking to our children is this the truth there are many ways we lie just because it's convenient right we, we think through white lies the, the whole world of honesty and lying and truthfulness is one full of mystery, full of social complexity, full of some haunting ethical questions, right? Like what if you are hiding someone, like a Christian who's being persecuted and someone comes and asks, like, are they in your house? Is it okay to lie then? What do you do there? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a freighted ethical issue in front of us. And Jesus envisions a community of people who are an alternative society, who in a world of fake news and dishonesty and oaths simply tell the truth. Notice Jesus' finality and emphasis on his prohibition against oaths. He says, do not take an oath. There's a command there. And he says, at all. In, In the Greek, holos, This word is very emphatic. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, look, it'd be best if you didn't do commands or take oaths, but don't take certain oaths. He says, don't take oaths. Don't take this oath. Don't take that oath. Don't do this oath. Don't do that oath. Don't swear by this. Don't swear by this. Don't swear by this. Don't swear by this. Do not do this. And then notice again what he adds at the end of this passage. Anything more than yes or no. He says it's of The evil one is of the evil one. So you have two things happening in this passage. You have Jesus calling us to be truthful, which is a challenging call, which is a call that should convict us, which is a call that should have us asking questions, repenting, forming new relationships, deepening relationships inside of our families, our neighborhoods, our communities, our church family. But it's also a call that needs to ask us about how we engage in speech with each other and in public. Because we still live in a society which functions on oaths. If you were to go to court today or to be elected as an official, you would be required to take an oath of some sort. And there have actually, perhaps surprisingly to you, been people throughout history who thought Jesus' teachings here were very clear that Christians are not allowed to participate in such behavior, such that if you went to court today and the judge said, place your hand on the Bible, you would have to say, as a follower of Jesus, I cannot do that. Jesus has told me not to take oaths because all of my words are honest. When we think about that, we think if you've never maybe heard of that idea that those people are out there, you think, one, this is a little weird. Two, what kind of trouble might they get in? Three, you think this seems kind of impossible. I would suggest maybe one of the reasons it seems so impossible is because we're so dishonest. Like if Christians were known for telling the truth, it wouldn't really be that weird of a thing to do in court. you just like, I'm a Christian. Like, okay, yeah, we're fine with you but because we're just as dishonest as the rest of the world, because we're not actually a separate community who follow a separate set of ethics, who who really follow in obedience after our Creator, because there's really no difference between the community of God and the community of the world. Such a a public stance seems seems odd. Yet actually for the early Christians— to to take a a kind of a walk through history. The early Christians took this command very literally. James repeats this in his book, in chapter 5, verse 12. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. Do not take oaths. There seems to be some um, difference of opinion here or there. Paul um, takes an oath of some sort on occasion in the New Testament. Um, What what Christians will say who, who believe that we need to take this command very practically and very literally is that Paul can do what Paul does. He might have had his own reasons, right? But we give priority to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus here seems to give a pretty clear prohibition. No oaths at all. Anything else comes from the evil one. The irony is, we've talked about this, right, in the Sermon on the Mount. We get these hard teachings from Jesus, and we work so hard to rationalize them so that they're really not quite as difficult or weird or countercultural as they might originally be. Let me just suggest to you this morning that while Jesus is, and while the thrust of this passage may be about truthfulness in general, perhaps you and I as Christians should take a public stance against oaths at all, as if anything like that is from the evil one. Just a maybe. Just something perhaps to consider. The irony is it's kind of obvious if you really think about this. It's precisely public legal oaths that Jesus is concerned with here in this passage. And it's precisely these public legal oaths that Jesus flat out forbids his followers from participating in. He's, he's not trying to present a clever way of, of telling you to be truthful. I'm trying to think of an analogy for this. And, and I don't think this is perfect, but this is the best I could come up with. The analogy might be like this. Your child and your parents say, don't go to the park on 8th Street. They say, don't go to the park on 8th Street at all. Never. If you do that, you are, are disobeying us. And then they continue to speak. The park at 8th Street is dangerous. And it's dirty. And so, as a child, you go back to your room and you start to think. You get a couple PhDs. You start to write some books. And you go, what my parents really were concerned about was me getting dirty and me getting hurt in a dangerous place. So, as long as I go to the 8th Street Park aware of that, aware that I should try not to get hurt and try not to get dirty. It's okay. Do you see the irony there? Like you you may have hit on the deeper point. Your parents may have been concerned about you being hurt and getting dirty, but they specifically told you not to go to this one park and yet you have somehow taken that teaching and wrapped it around to where you are finding yourself in that park. Jesus says, "Don't take oaths." And we go this is such a beautiful teaching from Jesus on being truthful. And then on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, we find ourselves taking oaths and swearing. A short run through of history, just to get you to think about this. I'm not. I'm. I'm, I'm not um, dogmatic on this. Um, I, I can't tell you even exactly what I would do if I went to court tomorrow. Um, but I think it's something. That we should consider. I think it's something that Christians have considered historically. The early Christians took this very seriously. In fact, until the emperor was converted around the fourth, fifth century, um, all early Christians um, outlawed oath-taking. Justin Martyr, named so because he died for his faith um, around 150 AD, very famous church leader. He says this um, when asked about this question. He says, Jesus' sayings are short and concise, for he was no sophist. He was no like long-winded philosopher. His word was the power of God about not swearing at all, but always speaking the truth. This is what he commanded. Swear not at all, but let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. What is more than this comes from the evil one. And now listen to Justin Martyr, 150. Those who are found not living as he taught should know that they are not really Christians. Even with their te- his teachings on their lips. They saw a command that seemed pretty obvious to them, and they took it pretty seriously. Justin Martyr, like many, died for this when the emperors converted, um Christians start making oaths to the Christian emperor, and so it becomes a practice again and it is obviously has always been a part of kind of the legal civilizational structure of society um and so for the most part um this is not really been a practice of Christians since the early church to not participate in oath-taking, except for um, a few notable exceptions. Three groups in history uh, have have stood out. Um, There's a group called the Cathari, um, who I had never heard of until this week. Another group called the Waldensians. I had also not heard of them. Very small. They they have not much of a, a legacy in history. And then the Anabaptists, which do have a large legacy in history, in forms of the Anabaptists, like the Mennonites or the Quakers. Many of you come to the church and like my preaching. Many of the things you like about my preaching, you might not know, but you like because I'm influenced by the Anabaptist tradition. The Anabaptist tradition says we should interpret the Bible, but we should place priority always on Jesus' teachings. So when it comes to oaths, they say you might find things in the Old Testament about oaths. Paul might do something with an oath, but we're gonna focus on the clear teaching of Jesus here. And the Anabaptist legacy is one of saying it's okay if our actions are weird and countercultural. It's okay if we're excluded because of our actions. It's okay if we're persecuted because of our actions. In fact, maybe Jesus calls us blessed if we if we if we end up in situations like that. Menosimons, Menno Knights, they come from him was the early Dutch Anabaptist leader. He says this about the the practice of non-participation and oath-taking in a public situation. "'If you fear the Lord and are asked to swear, continue in the Lord's word, which has forbidden you so plainly to swear, and let your yea be yea and your nay be nay, as you were commanded, whether life or death be your lot, in order that by your courage and firm truthfulness you may admonish and reprove others.'" Notice, one, he takes this command seriously. And two, notice, he says, by taking this command seriously, we are being a witness to the world. By, by being able to say our yes is yes and our no is no, we are a light in the world. We are this alternative society. We are a community that others look at and go, that's what life could be like if people told the truth to one another. There was a lawyer in England who became a theologian and studied the Anabaptist history. He has a Ph.D. in Anabaptist history. He's a theologian now. Um, One of his specialties in law was oaths. And studying the Anabaptist history, very fascinated with their interaction and dislike of participating in oaths. And so reading his thoughts on these kind of issues are fascinating for me, because I feel like here's a man who has... And knowledge in both worlds, right? He appreciates and understands the legal side of it and the sariness of it, and he understands as well the theological and biblical convictions that certain Christians have on it. Here's his conclusion of the matter He says this I've found people are bored with Christianity, but intrigued by Jesus, and I have a proposal when it comes to oaths. What if Christians, instead of watering down Jesus' teachings to appeal to people, lived what Jesus taught? And taught it as good news for others. What if Christians did something unpredictable or surprising? What if Christians were to campaign for the abolition of oaths? And why not? U.S. Christians campaign for many things. The abolition of abortions, for prayers in schools. Why not campaign for the abolition of something seemingly obvious? that Jesus himself so clearly opposed. Campaign against the oath. People, he says, would be surprised, would be intrigued, and the church might be relevant. He, he makes a, a, an observation that Minosimons Simons makes, actually, in the 16th century, which is, let's ask ourselves this, have oaths made us a more truthful society? I don't know if you follow the news or not, but don't. <laughs> Can they make us a more truthful society? Is, is there really actually, theologically or practically, usefulness in them? Or might it not be best just to say, through someone with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, shaped and encouraged with the community, following Jesus with them, we should just get rid of the whole thing. And invite the world to experience the life where there's one tier of speech. And that tier is truth. Just something to think about. Something to wrestle with. I conclude our our, our thoughts today as as we think about truthfulness and oath-taking with reminding us that, as always, Jesus himself is our best interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the one who is truthful. Jesus is the one who refuses to take an oath toward the end of his life. He remains silent when asked to to make one. We're reminded that we obey Jesus' teachings because of who Jesus is, the one who has come for our salvation, the one who is our Lord, the one who is our reigning king. We're reminded that we're called to be honest because God is honest. We're called to be truthful because God is truthful. We're called to be trustworthy because God is trustworthy. We're reminded that the scriptures tell us that Jesus is actually God's yes to humanity, to all of his promises to redeem and rescue and save and recreate. And if we think about it, Jesus is also God's no to humanity. His no to sin and death in sickness, his no to oppression, his no to, to evil. As Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, we can recognize that in the very life of Jesus, God has given us his yes and his no. And it's clear and final and trustworthy. And so as we come to the table this morning, we're invited to enjoy the fruit of the trustworthiness of our God and be called into living a life of trustworthiness like our God. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to think through your scriptures. We thank you for your spirit who guides us as we dig into and study your scriptures. I thank you for the community that you have given us. I thank you for a place where we can um, ask tough questions and, and wrestle through unique thoughts that um, perhaps aren't welcome uh, everywhere. I, I pray that you would allow us to think deeply and, and strongly and convictingly about what it might mean to be your people, to be a, a countercultural people, to be a people who surprise and, and are unpredictable and, and who, who bring glory to you by being the salt of the world, the light of the world. I pray that above all you would create in our hearts, in our minds, in our families, in our church, in our neighborhood, a culture of truthfulness, of trust. I pray that you would allow us to let our yes be yes and our no be no. We thank you for your yes and for your no. It's on the basis of that that we live our entire lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Everyone prayed, saying...